Please be seated. I'm a curious group of readings this morning. It's uh, in, sun, in, in Lent, it's the fourth Sunday, which uh, in the wider Anglican church is referred to as I believe, Laterite Sunday, which is uh, Mothering Sunday. Um, and if you were in some churches elsewhere uh, overseas or in some higher churches in the U.S., you would see pink vestments today, rose-colored vestments. And um, for, for that particular day, uh, and that day also coincides with Mothering Sunday is how they date Mother's Day in England. Am I correct about this? I look at my, yes, that's right. Today is Mother's Day in England. So um, even though it's not our traditional Mother's Day, maybe you just call your mom today and give her an extra special love. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. Um, but some interesting, some interesting readings this morning. I've always thought that this reading from Numbers was the most curious reading. Um, and my friend Jared Kramer, who is a priest in Michigan, uh, said last night that he thought that we, it should no longer be Laterite Sunday, but uh, a Snake on a Stick Sunday is what he said it should be. And, um, and I thought that was rather Southern of him being from Michigan, but Snake on a Stick Sunday sounds like something you'd have at the, te- the Texas Fair, you know, I think, that would be deep fried. Um, but, but that's what it is, and that's what happens, and it's the most interesting story because God First of all, it's hard to understand that God would send poisonous serpents. That just that doesn't make any sense to me in the first place. And then the second thing is, is that in order to, to solve that, once they realize that they've sinned, he gives them a, a bronze serpent on a stick to look at, which really is idolatrous. If you think about it, that's what the, you know, they're used to bowing to a golden calf, and now God says, here, here's a gold snake, you know, and look at that and you'll be okay. And maybe that's because he thought that's what they were used to. I don't know. Um, But but it is just sort of an odd reading and also one that calls to mind my own moments at the dinner table with my children, um, who oftentimes can be ungrateful about the things that we serve at dinner. Um, And there have been moments when I wish that I could call poisonous serpents to the table. Um, You know, Jesus is famous for saying, who amongst you if your child asks for an egg, would give them a snake, and I always go. Um, so it's an interesting reading, and it coincides with what Jesus has to say today in a conversation with Nicodemus, which uh, we'll, we'll circle around to more of that conversation momentarily. Um, but today, we have this great uh, conversation that's happening in John 3, and although we don't get the full context of it, it's important to talk about sort of why this conversation is happening and what's going on in the midst of it and why it's important to us um, for today. And so um, I, I was looking last night because I was curious. I thought, have I ever preached on this before? It's rare that I find a piece of Scripture that I haven't preached on before, and indeed I have never preached on this before. I did a Lenten talk at All Saints Church in Homewood in 2010 with my good friend Jack Alvey about this particular piece of Scripture, and um, I thought, well, maybe I should use some pieces of that, but then I remembered I was never invited back, so um, (laughs) I decided that I would go in a different direction altogether. Um, So, the context is, is that Jesus is having this conversation. I don't, I'm not trying to 
treat you as, as if you didn't know, but maybe some of you don't remember. He's having a conversation with Nicodemus in the garden. Nicodemus has come by night under the cover of night because he's, uh, you know, very much involved in the Jewish tradition of a Pharisee and doesn't want to be seen talking to Jesus, which would bring him much condemnation and all sorts of other things. And it's a very odd conversation, to say the very least, because it starts out with this unbelievable statement of Jesus saying to him that you must be born again. And then Nicodemus, of course, says, can a man re-enter the womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, you must be born of water and the Spirit, which is even more shielded and misunderstood and mysterious, even though we are Christians. We understand what it means to be baptized, but we couldn't tell you what it is exactly that happens to be born of the water and the Spirit. We know that something happens. We don't know what. So it must have been even more puzzling for Nicodemus. And if that weren't enough, he continues with what we have today. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life, which I think would bring on even more confusion because he's not going to realize that Jesus is going to be raised at the end of three days. And then maybe, just maybe, I don't mean to, you know, psychologize the person of Nicodemus, but maybe he's like me or you and thinking, what an odd piece of Scripture. I mean, that serpent and the devil, you know, in the, in the, in the desert business on a stick, that was already odd enough as it was. And, um, and then he continues. And then this is sort of the crux of, of what we come to today, and, and it, it brings me to several things. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we lost Billy Graham, a great uh, evangelist in the world, and you can say what you want to about really, uh, Billy Graham, but he was really um, a wonderful man who did wonderful work. And I had watched the other night um, The Darkest Hour, the biopic about uh, Winston Churchill. For those of you that haven't seen it, it's really worth watching. And I was reading further uh, in the library the other day that um, when Billy Graham went to England for his first evangelism tour in 1955, that he was required, he re, he had, Winston Churchill asked if he could have an audience with Billy Graham because Winston Churchill was agnostic. He didn't believe. It, it, there was nothing there. And so there was nothing after the veil, which I've also found always very interesting. And we don't know what the pieces of that conversation were, were about, although Billy Graham did say in later years that that Winston did say, asked him if he would pray for his soul. But that, that, that's the only piece that we know, and I found that intriguing because um, when I grew up, I grew up as a Baptist, and many of you who are sitting here today were in former faiths, uh, were not Episcopalian. At St. Stephen's, I don't know many um, cradle Episcopalians. They're, they're, I think the number is much less than those of you who did not. And so there are a lot of Baptists, a lot of Church of Christ, a lot of Roman Catholics, all sorts of folks sitting in our midst um, that are now Episcopalians, and we were taught something different. But no matter what you were taught, and specifically if you were like me from the Baptist tradition, this next piece of Scripture is the hallmark piece of Scripture. How many of you had to do sword drills when you were growing up? Just raise your hand. It's about 20 of you, yeah. Sword drills is when you had to learn particular verses, and you learn them by heart. And I'm thankful for that because there's a lot of things that I can sort of recite but at the same time, we were never taught what they meant. But so, um, so the number one thing that you always got was John 3.16, which occurs right here, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, 
so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. And so finally, we arrive at a verse that makes sense. Okay, well, I can get that. I can get my arms around that. And um, Billy Graham had referred to this as the gospel in small writ large. Um, it was a small package, and everything about it was large because it was the entire gospel contained in one sentence. It was everything that you would ever need to know, and that's why so many people hearken back to it and use it. But in so many faiths today, like so many other things here that we'll talk about in a second, it's used negatively and not for the positivity that comes from it. Because as I would grow older, there would be legal attachments that would come with it. And so it would say, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Well, you know, not the world, but He loved Christians, is what we were taught. Not the world. That was the first thing. The second thing that we were taught when I was growing up was that um, you need to get your life right and then come into the church. Um, and so that's not the world. The world is here. This is the world. The Christendom is what is the world. And so John that's sitting over here who's an alcoholic needs to go get his life right. And Mary who's over here who's a gossiper needs to get, by the way, there's no bigger gossipers than in the Baptist church. But um, but, but, but Mary was particularly bad, and so she needed to go get her life right and come back. And so, but th that's wrong. That's wrong. Um, because we know, uh, we, and if you don't know and you're sitting here this morning, I'm, I'm here to tell you, there's no legal attachment that sits on this particular piece of Scripture. There's none whatsoever. Your life is always going to be full of things that are not always the best. There's always going to be sin involved. And we want you here. I want you here because I'm just like you. We are the same. We're born of the same thing, of the flesh. And we have entered into this loving relationship with God, not by our own power, not by our own ability, not by our ability to go outside of those doors and get our life right, but by one thing and one thing alone, and that is the grace of Jesus Christ. It is the only thing. Now, people will not tell you this. They will impinge every possible law that they can to try and get you to live your life in what they consider inbounds as much as they possibly can. They do it all the time. The world does it. Everyone does it. Even people who are not Christians do it. And so it continues, and God, indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, this is a piece of Scripture we never heard when I was growing up, ever. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, because we were always taught that God had come into the world to condemn the world. We were always taught the opposite. And we continue to hear it day in and day out in our lives. I remember when Katrina hit, and one of those televangelists said that the reason that Katrina hit New Orleans because, was because of the sinful people in New Orleans and the sinful nature of the city. What a horrible thing to say. It's just not the case. It's not the case. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came in to save the world. And the world, not just you, not just me, not just Christendom, but everyone, because we've all sinned and fallen short the glory of God. It just simply is. 
There's nothing that you and I can do that we can bring to the table that makes it any better at any point, at any juncture whatsoever. But what we can do is we can say thank you. We can give praise. We can try our best to love our neighbor. And we can try our best to be the person that God would have us to be, always knowing that when we fail, not if we fail, but when we fail, that we fall back on something that is rooted so firmly in the ground, a cross that was driven so far in that it literally has the blood mark of it trickling into the earth that is the foundation of all things that says regardless of where you come from or where you're going, you are wanted here. Sometimes when I do the announcements and I'm welcoming people who are maybe new to the church, I'll say, regardless of where you come from or where you're going, we want you to know that you are welcome here. Does anybody know who I stole that from? Billy Graham. Billy Graham would always say that um, before he would invite people to come to the altar. Regardless of where you come from, where you're going, you are welcome here. We want everyone here. We don't need you to go get your life right. We don't need you to live in the law. We don't need to make sure that you go this and that and do this and that and act a certain way because Jesus Christ has already done that. He's already taken it for you. On this Sunday, on this Mothering Sunday, He has acted in the way that your mother has. One person that you can always go to who will always welcome you. Now, not all of us had such loving relationships with our mothers, I realize, but some of you have that person in your life, a sister, a friend, an aunt. Somebody has that figure, and that's Jesus Christ to you. He has done that. He has solidified all those things. He has wiped away all that stuff that you learned as a child. I remember when I was a child thinking firmly, well, it's two things, thinking firmly, one, that Jesus was coming at any moment because I had an uncle that whenever we would go to his house, he would talk about the rapture. And he would talk about it all night for like three hours, and then I would get home and be scared to death thinking that Jesus was coming any moment. I threw my kiss albums away, y'all. I mean, it was so, I was so scared. And, um, you know, I missed out on great tunes like Love Gun. I mean, come on. So, um, and then the second thing was, was, was that um, it, it, I was always taught um, that you could always lose your salvation um, as if it was something that could be taken away. And so I joke sometimes about the fact that I was baptized at seven and then rebaptized at ten, which is true. I was baptized a second time because I was particularly backslidden, is the word they would use, which, by the way, doesn't occur in the dictionary, backslidden between seven and ten years old. I think I may have stole some bubble gum. So they baptized me a second time. And, um, and this time they really held me under for about 15 or 20 seconds <laughs> to make sure that it took, and of course it didn't. So, um, uh, but we know that's not the case. It's not needed. It's not needed. We don't believe that in the Episcopal Church. One baptism, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Because all's been done. All of these religions and all of these faiths that gather with us, our sisters and brothers, we love them dearly. They do great work in the world. But if I could just pull them aside for one moment and call them back to the moment when they departed from Rome and became Protestants, 
for the reason that they did is the hallmark verse, not for God, God so loved the world, that one is important, but exactly what occurs this morning in your reading from Paul to the Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. On that hangs everything that I've just said. You were saved by grace. And there's nothing else there. That is girds everything that you have. It gives you everything that you have. So regardless if you're the alcoholic, regardless if you are that person that has done so many bad things, regardless of where you come from or where you're going, that when you sit in these pews, you sit in them justified by the grace of Jesus Christ, bought by him for you so that you could be in a loving relationship with God forever and ever, and it can never be taken away by anyone and specifically, not the Christian church of this world. Nobody can take it from you, ever. So as we go through this season in this desert that we wander through, may we not run into poisonous serpents, but may we also realize that in this season, when we strive so hard to learn new things and to do great things in our faith, that when we fall backwards and fall away from it, that it's okay because at that very moment, Christ picks us up and carries us through the power of his grace. Amen.